Hi, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this latest season of Be My Guest with Ina Garten. My name is Carrie Diamond, and I'm the host of the Radio Cherry Bomb podcast. Each week, I interview the most interesting food and drink folks around. And lucky for me, I've chatted with Ina several times over the years. Well, this season of Be My Guest is over. You can still get your fill of Ina and great conversation about food, drink, and life over at Radio Cherry Bomb. We're going to share some highlights from our Ina interviews with you right now, because as we all know, you can never have enough Ina. You can listen to the full Ina conversations over in the Radio Cherry Bomb feed. First up is our talk from a few months ago. Ina joined me for a revealing conversation about her family dinners growing up and the inspiration for her latest cookbook. We also talk a lot about food, butter, scones, dessert boards. Let's give a listen. Let's talk about this gorgeous book, Go To Dinners. I lost track. Is it 13 or 14? It's 13. 13. Sometimes I lose track too. (laughs) It's your baker's dozen. Well, it's interesting because I, I, in the back of my mind, something was worrying me that 13 is an unlucky number, but it didn't seem to pan out that way. Yeah. It's a baker's dozen. I like that better. It's a lucky number for, for people in the food world. <laughs> it's definitely a lucky number for you because every two years, I'm like, how is she going to do it? How is I going to do something fresh and different? And you always manage to do it. Uh, why did you decide to focus on dinners for this book? Well, I think, you know, it's, I started working on it during the pandemic, in the beginning of the pandemic, actually. And I found that I was working on recipes for a book. I mean, I'm always kind of working on developing recipes. I was doing recipes for Instagram to explain to people what to do with that, those white beans and ramen noodles that they bought in their pantry and didn't know what to do with them. And then at some point I thought, oh my God, I have to make lunch and dinner for Jeffrey and me. <laughs> so it was like, it was like such a crazy cookathon. And and at some point around, you know, between March and May, I, I just got in bed and pulled the covers under my chin and I thought, I have to do this differently because I, I just can't keep cooking this much. And I was exhausted as we all were because on top of everything else, we were really stressed. So I thought, you know, we don't really need like a big dinner. We found that we were really happier if we had like one thing like eggs in purgatory, which is a tomato sauce with poached eggs on top and big shard of crusty bread. And that was great for dinner. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll do a chapter in this book that's like breakfast for dinner. Dinner doesn't always have to be dinner, you know, classic meat, vegetable, starch kind of thing. And I started exploring it. And we found that, you know, having a big bowl of ramen chicken noodle soup or overnight mac and cheese and a big salad was so easy. And it was just delicious and satisfying. And we kind of never looked back after that. And then I started thinking, well, if it's fun for us and, and satisfying, why wouldn't it be fun for friends when I invite them over? And so I started doing that. I remember making waffles for for some friends, waffles and bacon. uh, I don't know what else I made with it. And they just went crazy. I mean, they went back, not for seconds, they went back for thirds. (laughs) So, So I thought, this is fun. It's just shake it up, time to shake it up a little bit. The sense of lightness and liberation really comes through. In the book. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And sometimes it's just a board. It's like a plowman's lunch, which is, you know, big shards of um, cheddar cheese and hard boiled eggs and celery sticks and, you know, just kind of the things that, that you'd get at a, a British pub. And it's just great. And there's nothing, you can even buy hard boiled eggs in the grocery store now. So don't even have to turn on the stove. So you talk about dinner, the sense of fun during dinner time. But in the very beginning of the book, you talk about your childhood. And dinner was not a fun time for you. Why was that an unhappy meal growing up in your household? 
my parents were authoritarian. You did what they wanted you to do. It was like, shut up and eat your dinner, no matter what it was. And I, I, you know, they were always pushing us to, to achieve, which makes me want to shut down. I like to decide what I'm going to do and then go do it. And I'll do it really well, but it has to be my decision. It can't be somebody else's. And so I really rebelled against that. And my rebellion was to withdraw. And so when we were at the dinner table, you ate what my mother made. And if you didn't like it, they were angry with you, which was really bad. And my mother had no sense of joy about cooking. She just got dinner on the table. It was, it was a pretty lonely, unhappy place. And then when I first got married, I just remember looking around going, I can do anything I want. <laughs> but anything. I can cook whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. I can go wherever. It was just a sense of liberation. And also living with somebody who just thought I, whatever I did was wonderful it was such a transformation for me and such a liberation. It's just what you, you were saying that I just, I kind of reveled in it. I still do. I read that your mother was a dietitian. Was that correct? She was. Yeah, by training. I mean, she didn't work as a dietitian when I was growing up, but when she got out of college, that's what she did professionally. And I think she was an austere person to start with. So her idea of um, fun is to just deny yourself something. There were whole categories of food that were just not allowed. And most of them were starches, carbs. There was no bread. There was no potatoes. There was no, there was nothing no pasta. There was nothing warm and cozy. It was all like broiled chicken and canned peas, which I mean, nobody wants. <laughs> I'm <Yikes>. sorry. <laughs> At least I don't. Your dad was a surgeon. Was he home for dinner every night? He was home for dinner every night. Yeah. For better or for worse. Because <laughs> he used to quiz us all during dinner. So I had like a knot in my stomach. <laughs> what would he quiz you about? Oh, geography, math, um, whatever it was. It wasn't a real conversation. It was the kids or kids have to do what the parents want, want. And it was a 50s time. It's when it's what people did then. So, but they weren't warm and fuzzy. It's amazing. Your meal times are the absolute opposite. Everything you exactly. do is warm and fuzzy now. Um, <laughs> are you still working on your memoir? I am. Yeah. How's it going? It's going great. I mean, it's, it's um, I hope it's interesting for people. You know, it's interesting for me going back because I'm always looking forward. I never look back. And um, for example, I, I have a box of letters that Jeffrey wrote to me when I was in high school and college. And I've, I've still kept it, but I've never looked at it. And looking through it is just like, oh, my God, that's amazing. You know, one letter he said, someday I'm going to take you to Paris. And we had no recollection of that. It was just so, so that's been really interesting is kind of connecting the dots. I mean, when I lived in Washington and I worked in the White House, I was renovating old houses. I was teaching myself how to cook. Um, I went to business school at George Washington. I mean, all at the same time. And I think, how did I do that? <laughs> but it just seemed so natural at the time. So in that sense, it's been really empowering to just go back and see that there were kind of seeds of that in the beginning that I've continued and followed through that it was there. I just didn't, hadn't developed it. Okay. I have tears in my eyes just thinking about a oh. letter that young Jeffrey wrote to young Ina saying, one day I'm going to take you to Paris. Isn't that lovely? And actually it was even more poignant than that because he said, in the beginning, we probably won't have enough money. So maybe we'll go camping, which is exactly what we did. And then maybe if we have a little more money, we can stay in a hotel, which we did. And, he, and the last part is, and someday maybe we'll be able to rent an apartment. And it was just, it, it was like the yellow brick road. He just laid out the path to exactly what we did. And the way we did it, it was really quite, and he had no recollection of it. So it was very, it was, that part is very interesting. You know, kind of an examined life is, is more interesting. So that's been fun. 
I can only speak for myself, but I'm guessing a lot of us Ina fans would buy an entire book of just the Ina and Jeffrey letters. So if you, <laughs> if you don't want to write that memoir, you can just compile all the letters. You know, I'll tell you, everybody has this thing about Jeffrey, which I find so charming. And we were going through London at passport control, just entering London. And the passport guy, you know, this very British guy is reading the passport. He goes, he looks up and he goes, oh, it's you. And, <laughs> and we're like, what? Are we going to get arrested? He said, my wife always says to me, why can't you be more like Jeffrey? <laughs> this was in London. <laughs> I just love that. That's so funny. I was shocked to read you weren't a fan of leftovers. The thing about leftovers to me is always, maybe I had a lot of leftovers as a child, I don't know, but I, I always feel like it's it's never as good as the first day. I just find it boring because I've already had it and it never has the same flavor the second day. And so I just didn't like it. And in this book, I thought, here we are stuck in our houses, don't know if we can get more groceries, can't leave, can't order out from a especially food store. And I thought, I really have to deal with leftovers because I always, you know, you make a roast chicken, they're leftovers. And I realized if I took the leftovers and actually did something completely different with them, then it wouldn't feel like leftovers. And my goal was to make them actually better in the second, you know, in the second round. So um, like there's a a, a wonderful recipe for um, roasted kielbasa with vegetables that was inspired by Sam Sifton at the New York Times. And um, you roast kielbasa with fennel. I, I did fennel and onions and peppers, and it's just such a simple dinner and so delicious, but you end up with a lot of kielbasa at the end. And so I thought, well, I love split pea soup with some kind of sausage in it. So I'll just saute the kielbasa and put the make a big pot of split pea soup and put the kielbasa in that. And then there was still some leftover. So I sauteed it and and with toothpicks, some serve it for hors d'oeuvres, you know, with a pot of mustard. And it's just great. So here's one dish that ended up in three different ways that was it was just great in each one. And it was different. You also lean into the board trend very much in this book. You talked about the plowman's lunch earlier. It's what, what farmers would take out to the field. So it's, um, you know, I've been doing board stuff for a long time. Even at Barefoot Contessa, I did huge country dessert platters that people would pick up. I would do um, all kinds of like a salmon nissoise platter. I, w- I was doing that real in the 80s. So I just kind of took it. I just continued it. The board's pre-TikTok. <laughs> Pre-TikTok, yeah. You're not on TikTok, are you? Um, no. <laughs> Any plans? I always say you can't say no to something until you try it. We're kind of investigating it right now, but not okay. yet. Tell us about some of the boards in this cookbook. One of the things we have is a dessert board, and it came from an experience I had in the south of France. We were at a restaurant that's on the beach. I mean, not near the beach, like actually on the beach. It was just wonderful in Cannes. And at some point, um, like three waiters came out with this enormous rectangular board. And on it were pieces of cake, cookies, fruit, um, shards of chocolate, all just right down the middle of the board. And they just plunked it down at this huge table where people were having a party. And it looked so spectacular. It was so much fun because you could, you know, have a cookie and some fruit or you could have, a, you know, a piece of a fruit tart and, and you could help yourself. And I thought there's nothing on that platter that you can't buy store-bought. You can go to a bakery, you can go to a grocery store, you can go to a chocolate shop and just get everything on that board. So that was the, the genesis of that dessert board, which is like fun. I mean, if you put put it down in the middle of the people, table, people just kind of go crazy. They do. Everybody loves a board. What are your thoughts on the butter board? I'm not a big fan of the butter board. 
<laughs> I don't know why butter on wood. It's just it just it just feels like it's on the floor. <laughs> I just can't I can't get past it. <laughs> but I haven't tried it, so I shouldn't uh, knock it. <laughs> that's so funny. Um, I am pro butterboard, but the butterboard has been more divisive than I thought something oh, like that could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what do people say about it? I think you either love or hate the butterboard. There are very people who are there are very few people who are just neutral about the butterboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you talked about the breakfast for dinner chapter, which I think is my favorite chapter. Mm, thank you. Could you tell us a little bit more about that chapter and another favorite recipe from it? Well, I always love my scone. That's always, um, and you know, it's scones with um, jam and butter and just, they're just, they're just heaven. I'm trying to think what are the and you other. You do a cream scone, right? A cre- yeah, if cream scone is actually, um, the cream is put on it. And actually I had a conversation with Emily Blunt on my uh, show, Be My Guest. And we had a, she, we were talking about whether you put the cream on first and then the jam on second, or whether you put the jam on first and the cream on second, which surprisingly really makes a difference because it's what you taste first. And she was saying, I can't remember now, I think the queen puts the jam on first and then the cream on second but her father does it the other way around. But I think the first thing that I did as breakfast for dinner, and it's the simplest thing once you get the hang of it, is a Gruyere omelet. I mean, you get all of the ingredients all ready and it's ready in like five minutes. And it's just a great, you know, with a big shard of of bread or something, it's a really satisfying dinner. And that's how I started saying, well, wait a minute, it's really kind of breakfast or lunch. And why can't that be dinner? Why Why is it you always have certain prescribed things? No, I think an omelet with a salad is the best meal. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner. It is, isn't it? Isn't Mm -hmm. it great? You mentioned in go-to dinners that you're a morning person. So that kind of also explains breakfast for dinner. Um, And you (laughs) said that you never understood how chefs could work so late into the night. And I was wondering, does this mean we'll never have an Ina Garten restaurant? It definitely, not for not, not for that reason, but (laughs) we will definitely not have an Ina Garten restaurant. I think that's the hardest work on the planet. It's just grueling. Everybody crammed into a small space. And I, I remember um, the book that was written about uh, Mario Batali's restaurant, Bill Buford's book, mm-hmm. about when he said, I just can't, couldn't figure out where to go in the kitchen. And he, and he said, not that I didn't know which station to go. I didn't know where my body was going to fit. And that just has always stayed with me. It's just extraordinary. And, and that if you have to change your tongs from your right hand to your left hand, you're already in the weeds. And so that kind of pressure, I I understand why people get an adrenaline rush from it, but I just, I couldn't do that anymore. So no, I love what I do. There are a lot of unexpected restaurant openings this year from like Martha Stewart, Priyanka Chopra, even opened Mm -hmm. one, Molly Yeh opened one, but no. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I've had a, I had a specialty food store for 20 years. I've had enough of the retail experience. You got your <laughs> it's fill. Hard. It's really, and I did catering for, you know, 15 years. So I know what's that, what that's like. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, Be My Guest, your TV show, which I love so much. A TV show and podcast, yeah. and it combines cooking and interviewing. And I was wondering, how are you enjoying the interviewing part? It's been amazing. The show is on Discovery Plus and Food Network. I have found the interviews stunningly interesting that each person has a story that shows you that they could never have been where they are if they hadn't pushed through some extraordinary, really overwhelming difficulty. And I, I think that's been a re- revelation. It's it's not that these people are successful because they were smarter or more talented, and, and granted they are, but 
there are a lot of talented people, but when they hit a wall, they figure it out and they get around it. And sometimes their lives would not have been what they are if they hadn't hit that wall. Do you have a list of dream guests for the show? Well, the ones I've had so far are so dreamy. I don't even know where to go. Um, I've just finished filming with um, four more guests. Um, Stanley Tucci, who, of course, is everybody's dream guest. Laura Linney, who is just absolutely amazing. Nora Jones. The singer is just incredible. I mean, she's, she, I mean, there was one fact I came across that there were 6 billion downloads of her album, 6 billion. There are only 7 billion people in the world. It's just extraordinary. And Misty Copeland, who just breaks my heart. She's so wonderful. So, I mean, it's pretty hard to to get better than that. How do you choose your guests, Ina? You know, I choose people I think would be interesting to spend the day with. It's really that simple. It's not like I'm looking for a certain type of person. Mostly they have some interest in food, which is really fun. But Nathan Lane was a guest and he didn't have any experience cooking. I was going to show him how to make mussels because I know he likes mussels. And I did. And he was just so wonderful. And in the end, he learned how to make mussels with saffron cream from go-to dinners, which is just great. And he took it home. (laughs) Oh, he did? (laughs) He did. I love that. We gave it to him for dinner. (laughs) I listened to that. It's also a podcast, which folks might not realize. It is a podcast. I listened to the Nathan one and it was so good. I love him and I learned a lot about him that I had never known. Wasn't that interesting? I mean, talk about barriers that you have to get past. He's Nathan Lane. He's just extraordinary. He adopted the name Nathan Lane and then ended up in being Guys and Dolls (laughs) as Mm -hmm. Nathan Detroit, which is who he named himself after. I love that. And Stanley, you finally met Stanley in person. Yes, I did meet Stanley. And amazingly, at nine o'clock in the morning, he made me my first martini. (laughs) And then I had to film with him all day. (laughs) (laughs) No one believes that was your first martini. You know that, right? I don't know why. I just thought, thought, I feel like a martini is like too strong for me. Like I would just fall over. I'd have one sip. But the way he makes them, he's specific about the the alcohol. He's specific about how you um, stir it so that you dilute it just right. And it was absolutely delicious. I hope you all caught the Ina and Stanley episode of Be My Guest. The two icons got together at Ina's home in East Hampton for an afternoon of laughs and real talk about life and love. And of course, there's that aforementioned martini. Fun fact, Ina and Stanley first met via Radio Cherry Bomb. Granted, it was a virtual get-together, but hey, every great friendship has to start somewhere. They bonded over their shared love of Julia Child. Ina, as you might know, taught herself how to cook from Julia's books while Stanley famously portrayed Julia's husband, Paul, in the film Julie and Julia. Let's listen in. Hi, Stanley. I'm so happy to see you, even, even if it's just digitally. I know. Me too. This is a real pleasure to, to, to finally meet you. We promised these guys we'd talk about Julia Child, so can we do that? And then we can just go on about our obsession with food. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, how did the role of Paul Child come to you? I was at a friend's Christmas party. Our friend, Natasha Richardson. Uh, and you know, she sadly passed away. And but if you want to talk about a great cook, that she was an amazing cook. But so we were at her her annual Christmas party, and um, Meryl said, do you, "Would you like to play Paul Child in this movie?" And you know, I'm going to make a Nora about Julia Child. And I said, "No, are you kidding?" Why would I said, "I said yes, of course." <laughs> First, how do you yeah. say no to Julia? To, to say no, street, yeah. but also yeah. to Nora and, Ephron. And Nora, <laughs> and also I loved Julia Child. In fact, I wrote about Did her, you know in, this, her? In, the, in the book. No, I didn't. I was asked to go. I was invited to her 
I don't know what birthday, it might have been like her 90th birthday or something, and I couldn't go. And oh. I was so sad uh, that I couldn't go. But I remember watching her when I was a kid with my mom. My mom was a huge fan of hers. And so she was such an inspiration for me. I just loved Julia Child and, of course, Marilyn, Nora. And we ended up doing it about a year later. You know, you mentioned her 90th birthday. I always remember her being on Larry King for her 90th birthday. And he said, yeah. so, Julia, what's the secret of life to you, of your, of your long life? And she said, well, I have I eat lots of different things in very small quantities, and I have a very good time. And I thought, that was, <laughs> that's what we all need to do. She's right. <laughs> that's, she's, she's right. She was absolutely right. <laughs> she knew how to do it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, there are two scenes in the movie that I just adore, and I know you've talked probably talked about the movie at, at infinitum, but um, in Julie Julia, one one is when you're in the restaurant, that iconic scene where where Julia um, tastes the the um, saumonier, and she's trying yes, to yes. decide what to do. Um, yeah. and, and do you remember how the conversation went? Yeah, I do because there. Well, there, that we actually shot that scene down in in the village. Uh, oh, you did. Yeah, it was one of the first scenes we shot, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. And um, and it was so exciting. First of all, I love Solomon. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> it was absolutely delicious that day. This fellow was making them left and right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I do remember it. And it was just so much fun. It was a great way to sort of start off things because we really got to eat. Uh, and, and Nora was great about letting you play around with stuff too. So once you tasted, once you tasted something and you, and it really tasted good, it wasn't like most movie food, which tastes terrible. Uh, it was real and you, you couldn't help but react uh, organically, spontaneously. And, and so was and it, it, so you said, you said to, um, she was trying to figure out what to do. And you said to her, well, what do you like to do? And she said, well, yeah. I like to eat. And you, yeah. and you said to her, well, you're very good at it. Was very that in the script or was that just no, a no, I know, I made it up. <laughs> it was just a wonderful moment. It felt like you might have. <laughs> yeah. I made, I made it, was, it up. <laughs> I'm so glad it ended up in the script. Yeah, me too, me too. We, we laughed. <laughs> in we the laughed movie. Ahead. You know, it was one of those movies that you just, you know, not every movie you make is fun to make. and um, Of course. You know this, you know. Um, but, There's a chemistry and organic thing that happens. Yeah, yeah. With this, the wonderful group of people. I mean, I never got to work with Amy or Chris, sadly. But yeah, that's right. They were two different movies. Yeah, I know, I know. But working with her again after the Double Us Prada, and we had become we were becoming more friendly, was just the greatest experience. And she so completely embodied Julia Child. That's very, extraordinary. Just it's extraordinary. extraordinary. It's a really hard thing to do because she was so mimicked, you know, because, yeah. you know, by Dan Aykroyd, which is actually in, in the movie. And, <laughs> and was, you know, everybody, everybody did that. I mean, I just did it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's exactly I mean, right. And, yeah. and the thing about it is, it's one thing to create a character that's fictional because you can really kind of get into it. But in this case, she's creating a character where everybody just adores her and knows her. So it's it's very hard to do, I'd imagine. Yeah, it's really, really, really hard. Whereas to Paul do. was less well known, but I mean, you just yeah, did such really. a such a gorgeous, gorgeous Paul, support for her. Oh, thanks. Well, Paul, it was so much fun, and, and Paul, you know, Paul had a very 
by by all accounts, I got to meet his um, nephew or great nephew. Who who wrote uh, the book uh, about? Alex, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Alex Prudhomme, and who was a really, really wonderful guy and incredibly helpful to me. And and he said, you know, he had this real Boston Brahmin accent. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, no, I can't do that. Because if I do that <laughs> and she's doing Julia Child, it's just like, you know, you're it would just be too many different accents and too many different too much going on. And since nobody knew what he sounded like. Exactly. Yeah, it, it was fine. Really, it was about just the support, you know, that he that he gave her. Well, you, I mean, I'm assuming this is what Paul was like because this is what my husband Jeffrey's like. Is he never tries to fix anything? He never tries to say do this or do that. He just always kind of reflects what um, what what I want to do and just supports it and and encourages it. And that's what it felt like Paul did. Is it yeah. was that true to the character? Absolutely true, true to the person. No, absolutely. I, I think there were times when people have said, you know, he could be quite cantankerous and a bit grumpy and cranky. But I, I don't necessarily know with her. I think he, I think he, you know, he's the one who really felt that she could do all the things that she yeah. ended up doing and helped her in any way he could. He used to wash dishes after the television shows and carry her kit and all this stuff. Uh, for for and years. Remember, this was a different time when when men yeah. weren't sec second. You know, they they were they didn't share the spotlight with a woman. So it's even more extraordinary in that in that time. If Julian Paul Child were coming to dinner, what would you make for them? Well, I certainly wouldn't make anything French. That's for sure. I certainly wouldn't. Yeah, no, would. <laughs> you want to make no. what you love. Yeah, I would make some uh, what I love and what I know. Uh, I wouldn't experiment with that. <laughs> oh no, no, I wouldn't either. <laughs> No, no, no. I wouldn't even make a roast. I wouldn't even make a roast chicken for her. something supposedly very simple, but actually, in some ways, it isn't very really. Simple. It isn't. Chicken. Yeah. No, no, it isn't, and it's one of the greatest things in the world. But you have to know how to do it, otherwise, you know, it's dry or it's whatever. Oh, it's it is. just awful. Yeah, oh, it's and awful. it's so easy to make a good one. You just have to know how to, as you say, yeah, you know just how have to, to, know how to do it. Yeah, but I think I think I might make something like. I would go, I would probably make either pasta a la vongole, oh, which is just so simple. Yeah. And it's nothing. It's three ingredients. You know, it's nothing. Or I, maybe I would even do like a, uh, like a chopino. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I love um, chopino. Yeah. Something like that. Like a, a simple fish. Really rustic. Stew, yeah. With toasted bread and then <clears throat> maybe some you know, really something simple for an appetizer and a mm. salad. And that's it. That's that it. sounds and, and lots of wine. <laughs> lots of wine. <laughs> and she would love it. <laughs> She'd yeah, be so yeah, happy. Yeah. Can we promise to make dinner together sometime? After my the God. After I would, this is all I would, over? You have no idea how much I would love that. I would uh, love that. I would absolutely love it. I'll be your sous chef. <laughs> Please. Well, no, likewise. I'll do whatever you want. Uh, you know, I'll be your Paul child. <laughs> and I'll play Julia. I don't think right. so. I think there's only one Julia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Stanley, I've just loved talking to you. Thank you so much. I love your joy. I love your interest in food. And I love really everything you do. It's just wonderful. Well, I feel the same about you. And thanks so much for. Thank you. So good to see you. And give my All love right. to Emily. All <laughs> right. I will, of course. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ciao. Ciao. Bye bye. <laughs>
Well, Ina and Stanley kept their promise and cooked together. For our final Ina segment, we learn about Ina growing up in Brooklyn, working for the White House, yes, the White House, and backpacking through Europe with Jeffrey on $5 a day. She also shares her favorite modern comfort food. Ina, take it away. Where in Brooklyn were you born, Ina? I was born in Flatbush. And it's funny, we did a show on Barefoot. I I think it must have been that show, Barefoot New York show. And I said, let's go back to where I was born. And now I left when I was five, which I don't want to tell you how long ago that was. And I'd never been back. So we were in the car. It's Avenue G, which was called Glenwood Road. The house was on a corner and this down the middle of the street, there were trees and there was a you know divider that had trees in it. And about a block away, there was the train went by and I didn't know what kind of a train it was. Now I know it was the subway, but it was above ground at that point. And I thought, I wonder if my memory of the area was right. And we were driving down the street and I was like, oh my goodness, that's exactly the way I remember the trees in the middle of the street. And then I was like, oh my goodness, that's the house. And a block later, there was the train. So from five, I remembered it so vividly. It was exactly the way I'd remembered it. And when we got out at the train, we got out of the car and we were having a little picnic there and a man came out of his house and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I, I, I used to live in that house. And he said, I remember a doctor used to work there. I was like, that was my father. I mean, he remembered from that time that we had lived there. That was just so amazing. I know you've talked about your time at the White House, but for people who don't know that you have a connection to that. You worked in the Office of Management and Budget. I was in a group that worked in science and on science issues. And I, I oversaw the budget of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and the part of the Department of Energy that built nuclear power plants or, or enriched uranium for nuclear power plants. And which administrations? It was Ford and Carter. I came in the day Ford. I mean, just coincidentally, the day Ford started. And you pursued your MBA while you were working at the White House? I did. I went to, I don't know how I did everything I did when I, I I mean, it was a more than a full-time job because there were days when we would work all night on some legislation that had to go the next morning. I renovated old houses at the same time. I loved renovating houses. So I'd buy houses, renovate them and sell them. And then I would give dinner parties every weekend because I wanted to teach myself how to cook. So I think how many days a week were there when I was in Washington, but I just, I kind of loved everything I was doing. And I was in my twenties. So I guess I had a lot of energy. (laughs) What was it like going there every day? I didn't work in the White House itself. I mean, it wasn't like an episode of West Wing. (laughs) Right next to the White House, there's a big gray building that looks like a wedding cake. That's the old executive office building. And then there's a new executive office building across the street. That's where I worked. Did you have security clearance? I had a Q clearance, which is a nuclear energy clearance. It's a very high clearance. It sounds very Maxwell smart, doesn't it? (laughs) I had a Q clearance. I don't think I ever got any secret information, though. (laughs) You taught yourself how to cook through Julia Child's books. Is that correct? When I first got married, I had always wanted to cook. My mother never let me. And so what I did was I bought Craig Claiborne's New York Times cookbook, which I think was quite new at the time. And I worked my way through that book when Jeffrey was in the military and we were moving around a lot. After Jeffrey got out of the military, before we went to Washington, we took a camping trip for four months and we went to France. We went through Belgium, Holland, came down through England and Scotland, and then through Normandy and Brittany. And it was an amazing, amazing trip. And we literally had $5 a day. There was a book then that was called Europe on $5 a day, including our camping site fee. 
We had like $3.50 to spend for all of our expenses that day, including gas. So, I mean, we had to eat for like a dollar a day. And the only way you could do that is by going to the markets. And so we would go to the French market and buy a piece of cheese and a, a baguette and, you know, and, and fresh peaches, which were so delicious. And you just couldn't believe that you could buy them for, you know, 50 cents for a peach that tasted like it, it was just picked off a tree. And that really got me interested in, in cooking because in this, this was now the early 70s. And, you know, you couldn't buy a baguette in the United States. You couldn't buy a croissant. You can, couldn't get, you know, peach that was ripe from the farm. So when I came back to Washington, then I, that's when I got Julia Child's Master in the Art of French Cooking and really started working my way through that, those two volumes. So you were like an early version of Julie and Julia. I was Julie, Julia, exactly. <laughs> it's funny. Some people have told me that I'm their Julia Child for, that, for Julie and Julia, which is really flattering. <laughs> you have had such a fascinating life. I was curious, what is still on your bucket list? Well, I'd like to go to Antarctica. I'd also love to go to New Zealand. It's a beautiful country. And I have a very good friend who's from New Zealand. And I just, I love the way she talks about it. Okay, let's do a little speed round. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Lots of it. How do you take it? <laughs> With milk. Sweet or savory? Savory. Oh, I thought you'd say both. Savory. Okay. Oh, bo oh it's both an option, both. Sure. <laughs> How about savory with a cookie thrown in every once in a while? <laughs> <laughs> Most used kitchen implement? I would, that's a tough one. Sheet pan. I love a stack of sheet pans because you can cook almost anything on it. You could roast a chicken. You can roast vegetables. The thing, I use sheet pans a lot. What is a song that makes you smile? A song that, anything from Hamilton, just love it. And anything from Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> what is the oldest thing in your fridge? Oldest thing in my fridge. In my freezer, I have truffle butter, which I always keep in the fridge. <laughs> I think it's been there quite a while. It might be time to rotate it. <laughs> <laughs> Most treasured cookbook? Hmm. I have a lot of cookbooks from Sarah Chase which I love because they're, they're from especially food store background. She and I have the same sensibility. So open house cookbook and cold weather cooking. Um, I love her cooking a lot. I use her cookbooks a lot. If you could switch places with any person for a day, who would it be? It's pretty hard to imagine who I would change places with for a it's day. It's only for 24 hours. So it's only 24 hours just to have a taste of what it's like to be Meryl Streep's day. <laughs> could I have her talent as well? Sure, sure. <laughs> okay. She's got an adorable husband. She has a really great career, and I think she's wonderful. How about Meryl Streep? Meryl Streep, okay. <laughs> and she's a good cook, so maybe she'll switch with me. All right. Well, Ina, thank you. Carrie, I love what you do. I absolutely adore it. It's always fun to talk to you. Thank you. That's it for our time with Ina. It's been such a pleasure talking with her and getting to know her over the years. I hope you enjoyed these highlights from our chats. You can listen to the full INA episodes on Radio Cherry Bomb, available wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, you'll find lots of other interviews with amazing folks from the worlds of food, drink, and hospitality. And if you missed any episodes of Be My Guest with INA Garten, well, get going. Radio Cherry Bomb is a production of the Cherry Bomb Podcast Network. Our theme song is by the band Tra La La. Thank you to Joseph Hazen, studio engineer for Newsstand Studios at Rockefeller Center. Our producer is Catherine Baker. And our associate producer is Jenna Sadu. Ina's the bomb, and you're the bomb too. Thank you for listening.